Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, this is Andrew Olson. It's good to be with you all today. I'm really excited to have a good friend, Beth Fisher, on this call today. So Beth is the Vice President of Advancement at Mel Trotter Ministries, a longtime partner of ours. She's also an accomplished leader, marketer, salesperson, and now uh, the author of the recently released book, Remorseless, uh, Learning to Lose Labels, Expectations, and Assumptions Without Losing Yourself. Beth, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, super excited to have you here. We're going to be talking about disrupting the status quo, which I'm, I'm expecting that some on, a, on listening to this podcast are going to crack up when they hear that because we're recording this on uh, April 10th in the second month of a global pandemic, which I think has disrupted everything. But really, we're, we're talking about positive disruption in the workplace and particularly how nonprofits can approach uh, disruption in order to gain value. But before we get into that, Take a few minutes, tell us about who you are, what you're doing at Mel Trotter, and tell us about your book. Sure, sure. So I have been in B2B sales, corporate sales for 25 years, and effective January of this calendar year, I ditched that gig and went to nonprofit. So my heart has always been for people and for disruption. And in fact, somebody called me unorthodox the other day, and I said, yeah, it's my middle name. Like, how did you know? But you know, it took me many, many years to figure out that it was okay to be like that. And it was okay to ask all the questions and it was okay to not be okay with all the answers. So part of that was just really learning through the school of hard knocks. So I would, uh, I sold content management systems, business process is what I would do for non vertically specific industries all across the country um, and, and globally at some, you know, on some level. So I learned as I went along, I right out of college, I started to do this and really understood that I loved people in business. So as part of that, uh, I started to question relationships and how they work, not only from a selling perspective, but from a humanity perspective. And of course, the extension of that is, quote, religion. And I, I hate labels, which is why I wrote the book. I don't think it is helpful in any way, shape or form in business or in life to label individuals or processes that are, are not helpful and forward thinking. So I grew up Catholic. I had 30 years of Catholicism. I'm Italian and Irish. I tell people I did not have a choice. So I didn't learn much in the Catholic church other than there are bigger questions in the world. And why do I have to listen to one guy tell me what the one way is? I always think there's another way to do things. So again, as part of that, I wrote this book that spoke about that journey of being who you were created to be. That's always my messaging. And again, whether you bring that into uh, the workplace or your home, it is imperative because we cannot do anything successfully unless we are functioning in the way that we were made to function. And a lot of times we get off course by pretending we're somebody that we're not. So, yeah, that's, that's so true. I mean, I'm sure it happens everywhere. We run into it all the time in our sector. And I think, you know, the, the work that you're doing along those lines is really impactful probably for everybody, but I hope that some of our listeners who are leading nonprofit organizations because their work is so meaningful globally, I hope some of them will take the opportunity to, to pick up that book, to read it, to learn from it, and to start to apply those ideas and those thoughts that you've uh, incorporated into the book 
uh, in their own lives so that they can be more effective, you know, at home, but also in, in their, you know, food bank, in their hospital, in their, you know, environmental organization, whatever it is, um, to do more good in the world. So thank you for doing that. Sure. But let's get into the conversation around disruption. So I'll preface this by saying, uh, you know, I've been in this industry serving nonprofits for 20 years, and I've, I've worked inside a nonprofit before, and I, I've also worked uh, as a fundraiser for, for the U.S. Congress. And what I tell people is my time inside a nonprofit what I discovered was that it's harder to get things done in a nonprofit than it is to get bills through Congress, which <laughs> says a whole lot, I think. Um, and by, by the look on your face, I think you probably agree. So, uh, so I just want to preface this with saying, you know, it, it, there's a bit of irony around the idea of disruption in the nonprofit space, but it's such a needed conversation. So you're, like you said, new to this, to, to nonprofit leadership, but you're not new to leadership, nor to business. And, and so I'm curious to know, have you found your core leadership and business skills challenged in this nonprofit role? Like, like talk about what that looks like for you. <laughs> it looks like a whole lot of patience. And, and again, I heard you say the word irony. I have found this ironic since day one, right? That my heart has always been to help people, but I come in any room, any place, any conversation sort of like guns a blazing, right? Like I want change out of the gate. And I think the most immediate thing that I learned was, wow, this is going to take some time. And I wanted it all done by like Friday. And so my former life, right, 25 years of going into corporations, I was always on the proverbial clock, trying to show ROIs, trying to say, for these dollars, we can get this done in this time frame. So I come from a very project management mindset and uh, very linear. And, and that is not the case in non nonprofits, right? So at least it's not been my experience for the last three months. But yet, it is much needed. So I had to find very quickly a balance between creating trust and relationships and, and also merging that with these things still need to be done. And, and I'm guessing, right, in, in many nonprofits, if not all of them, the cause and the mission brings people there because we are all people who have hearts to make a difference. And yet we're sometimes afraid to... Uh, not walk on eggshells about getting that done. And, and I haven't been afraid to do that. And I, I won't. So I often tell people, Hey, I may need a job by the time that I'm done doing these things, but that's okay. It's much needed. I think I got that email. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, I told you, I was yes. serious. I was serious. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, that approach Obviously, it works in the business uh, community. It, it's it's the reason that I left work inside a nonprofit and went back to consulting because the the pace for me was untenable inside. Right? It, it you know it, I I tell the story to to some people that it took me two years to convince uh, an executive team at a children's hospital where I was working that they needed to change their newsletter when the data showed that every time they mailed it they lost forty thousand dollars. Like that should be one conversation and done, right? Uh, but it took two years. So talk a little bit about in, in that sort of bull in a china shop environment that you stepped into, how, how have you navigated those conversations while still respecting the relationships with the people inside? And also the fact that for as much as you and I might think certain things are, are maybe not optimized, it happens to be the way they've done it for, for a long time, right? So how, how, do you, how do you walk into an environment like that and navigate that conversation? Uh, by asking questions. And so what I really did um, 
was to understand as much as I could, as quickly as I could, the way things were functioning today. And then I would simply ask very pointed questions, almost like parenting in a way, right? Like not say, hey, how was your day? When I used to ask that of my teenager, it was just like, good, fine. You know, you get one word answers. I asked very pointed, almost consulting-like questions to say, when you do things this way, what do you hate about that? And I, and I wanted to know a really long answer. I wanted them to say, well, it takes so much time or this makes no sense or I don't like it because I can't talk to donors, right? These are the things that I really just sort of started to uncover layer by layer. And I took that feedback and then reframed it, reframed it a little bit downstream, if you will. And I would say, hey, this is what this individual told me that they didn't like about that process. Do you agree with that? And does that affect what you're doing in your role? And if not, where do you think we could do this perhaps just way more efficiently? And I'm just taking all those answers and structuring, structuring it in a way that people feel comfortable saying these things. I think there's a level of guilt almost that people don't want to say that things stink when they stink. And that's okay. Like we need transparency. We need communication. If people are not communicative, then everything just dies on the vine. So you can't just think these things and not act on these things. Yeah, so let's let's stay on that for a second because I do think that people are afraid to say this stinks. And I think that's, you know, it comes from a couple of different places, right? So I, I'm particularly curious about the issue of fear when it comes to talking to someone who's a senior level leader and, and being concerned about, well, you know, is this going to put my job at risk? Am I going to be seen as like, you know, a person who's always negative? H- how do you help protect that relationship? and convince the the folks that are on your team and across the organization that bringing you that kind of feedback and being transparent in the process leads to something positive rather than negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good question. And it's an imperative one. And so the answer is I, I walk that walk as much as possible. And I share with them, you know, this goes to everything that we know that Brene Brown talks about. So leading um, through vulnerability. And so you cannot say to your teams, well, hey, just trust me on this. And then you in turn are not communicating back to them the things that you're fearful of. And so I share those with the team frequently. Like, hey guys, I am afraid if we don't do this, this is potentially going to happen. And we can't have that happen. Or I share things with them like, man, I really wanted to get to this piece of what I needed to do last night and I didn't do it. So I have to figure out a way to work that into my day. So leading by example is huge. I don't always get it right. None of us always get it right. But what we can do is at least be on a parallel course with our teams so they understand that we also have struggles. We don't have all the answers. None of us do. But if you share that bi-directionally, then you start to establish a sense of trust and you open up the opportunity for people to say, well, last time I told my superior this, they didn't, there were no repercussions. They listened to me. They, they started to give me feedback in ways that I could perhaps navigate my day-to-day activities in a way that's more meaningful. And I feel like I can bring them something else next time. That makes good sense. I want to pivot us a little bit to talk about sort of sector wide. And I don't know how much time you've had to, to really scan the sector, either locally or, or nationally. But I'm curious to know, when you look at the nonprofit sector, what do you see as sort of the, the way this sector approaches uh, disruption and innovation today? And, and where do you hope to get six months or 12 months down the road? I, I see it being approached uh, timidly, and I hope to get in a position of more bravely. And I, I see 
to me, there's no, just like I hate labels of people, because to me, I think everybody is the same. I really do. I also hate on some level the labels of for-profit and non-profit. Mm-hmm. I understand the missions are different, but the business function within each is not different, nor should it be. So I see... Say that again, any, because people need to hear that again. <laughs> <laughs> so again, yeah, to me, there's, there's no distinction other than mission in terms of for-profit and non-profit, because the business processes within each should absolutely be the same. And where I see any type of organization, again, label agnostic, where I see them fail is a lack of clear direction, a focus on planning only and non-execution. So people can talk all day long. They can plan and say, these, these are the directions we want to go in. These are the ROIs. This is the product we want to manufacture. These are the people we want to have donate. Whatever that conversation looks like, you know, I often get a little impatient when I'm like, how, how many more meetings are we going to have about this? Like, how long are we going to keep talking instead of executing? So it's no different than when you're playing a, a sport, right? And you say, okay, let's run the play. Let's talk about the play. Let's draw the play. Let's go into the locker room. And then nobody runs it. It's like, well, how are you going to win the game? So I, I also see um, in nonprofit that there's a almost a disdain or I guess a little, little softer, a distaste for risk. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> for risk. And it's very much proactive versus reactive. So you know, to be, I'm sorry, it's, it's the opposite. So it should be proactive and it's not, it's not at all. So there is almost this sense of, we're just going to react. We're just going to say, Hey, we know this potentially is coming, but we're not going to try and get out ahead of it. We're just going to like do the best we can to mitigate it when it happens. And, and that makes not a lot of sense to me. And the last thing I'll say about that, I'm going to preface this by saying, I know this might sound a bit harsh (laughs) and, and I wrestle with this personally from how do you sound and believe the way you do about people, but also have a, uh, not a lot of tolerance for mediocre performance. Mm. So I think that there is a widespread excusing of mediocre performance. And I think that people are okay in this sector with the bar being lower. And when you, when you have a bar that just stays low and people are afraid to raise it, then that's status quo that's where you get stuck and that's where things don't change. And so I just go, well, if we're out here and we're trying to change a landscape in the world, how do we then not change internally? Those are incongruent. Yeah. Okay. There's so much there. (laughs) Um, I can go on. uh, On on that last one, I'm right there with you. I mean, and this is something that I've written about as well. You know, I I was speaking to a group of uh, food bankers a couple of months ago and and the statement that I used was, you know, you, you can't accept mediocrity and expect it to evolve into excellence, right? If you as the leader say, this is the bar that I'm willing to accept, very few people are gonna say, well, I'm gonna exceed that, right? They're gonna say, I'm gonna do my best to get to that bar. I might not get there, but at least I tried, which means that we're, we're accepting mediocre and less, right? And, and I, I will say, you know, that's not unique to the nonprofit sector, but I have certainly seen a significant number of organizations that are willing to accept it. I want to tackle this distaste or disdain for risk because I think that there's probably a number of reasons for it, but I think one of the biggest reasons that I see that I want to get your perspective on is this idea that organizations in no better way to talk about it, but in the nonprofit space, they we operate on really thin margin and so many organizations don't make the effort or don't know how to build a reserve 
And I'm not talking about a Harvard level endowment, although, you know, maybe there's, maybe that's warranted for some organizations, but you know, even to have two or three years of reserves or to have, you know, uh, non-operating working capital sitting on the side so that they can say, you know, not just how do we protect against the downside, but how do we take advantage of an opportunity that might arise that could really help us level up. Talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the business fundamentals around living on such thin margin, almost living paycheck to paycheck and, and the risk that that puts on us. Yeah. So it puts obviously undue risk upon the staff. And so without that proactive approach in thinking like that, you know, it leads to crisis management. It leads to decisions that perhaps would not be made otherwise through, you know, cautious long-term strategic thinking. Instead, it's again, very reactionary. And you know, what's always interesting to me is that many, many executive teams spend time exploring the risks of different courses of action. Like we can't do this because it may lead to that. It's very hypothetical. And they will spend so much time kind of exploring the risk of doing something differently to your point of, you know, securing additional funds or putting different funds in place or just thinking again long-term, but they neglect to spend time making very similar assessments of the risk of staying course, staying on Mm. course. So they don't assess the risk of, okay, what are we, what are we going to look like if we don't do these things? If we just keep everything as is, then what? And again, that's, that's not just in business. That's relationally too. People can take that into marriages and to parenting. If we don't change the way that we are functioning relationally, long-term relationship wise, how are we growing? Like, how do we get closer? How, how do we accomplish this internal household team as an example? Same thing with teams in the organization. I had somebody recently say to me, well, what, what about this thing that's happening on the other side of the house, if you will. So more operationally than, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for communication development. So bringing money in and communicating, you know, external messaging of the organization. But somebody on our team asked me the question, well, what are they doing over there? And I said, you know what? I don't know. And I don't need to know. And here's why. A team by definition functions when what you were hired to do, when what you were created to do is brought to fruition and And the bar for that effort is raised by yourself, by your, you know, you have this this burning desire and passion to get better. And so it's a leader's job to help them rise up and do that. But it is not our job to be all things to all people. You know, I played basketball in high school, so I often use the analogy. My job was to bring the ball up the court, not to get rebounds. And so if I had our center who's under there just deciding that she's not going to get rebounds, then I have no ball to bring up the court. Well, in a non-for-profit, you know, if we are not out securing funds, we have no business operations to be speaking about because the business is no longer open. <laughs> so, you know, so everything sort of goes hand in hand and that risk is, is big. It, it's, it's almost, it seems like it's insurmountable, but when you break it down piece by piece or team member by team member, then eventually it all becomes this cohesive, uh, less daunting task. So, you just said if you break it down by, by team by team or team member by team member, that I think is the right way to do it. And I think it leads to success more often than not. It's also something for particularly for like, you know, an overloaded executive director or senior leader that might sound daunting unto itself, right? Wait, I've got to plan this out at the individual level. And I might have 10 people that report to me and how do I do all of that and my day job and make time for my family 
talk a little bit about how you recommend leaders think about that and, you know, sort of how do you approach it on a daily basis so that you don't burn yourself out quicker than you can be effective? Yeah. And this, this again, under the heading of transparency and vulnerability, um, I have often as a uh, high performer, right. Control freak um, struggled with this, struggled with this, but it's, but it's crucial. And so my recommendation to folks in leadership roles, especially at the ED level would be, you have to be okay with trusting your team. You have to say, I don't know. And I don't want to know because if, if you don't trust your team to do the things that they are tasked to do, then how can they in turn trust their own? So it's this whole ripple effect. So you have to be okay with not micromanaging. You have to be okay with saying this, that's not my side of the house. That's not what I was hired to do. My job at that level is to make sure that the mission stays open. And to do that, I don't need to know about the minutia or the granular level. I have to know in the main, but I don't need to know all the details because all of those details will just get those individuals stuck. They will be so stuck in the narrow focus that they will then fail to see the broader focus. And also what that does is again, bi-directionally instill that level of trust that we talked about. So if you have trust in your team members that they can do what you're asking them to do and everybody sort of, I hate the term because it's overused, but stays in their lane, then if they're doing those things, again, it functions more as a team. So you have to say, I'm going to plan my day. These are my priorities. Um, I often, I brought to our team um, MDI as well. So managing daily, you know, just what, what's on your plate? What are the risks? What are the roadblocks? What do I need to get done in this week's time? I break it down weekly for our team individually. Say, this is where we need to be by this date. We have this many weeks to do it. You just back into it. So it's scheduling. It's being very, very intentional about protecting time. So I want to stay on this for just a second because you know there's several million nonprofits in the US and many of them are founder led still and i think one of the challenges that uh, particularly that founder led organizations face is kind of similar to to startups on the for profit side it's often hard for a founder to let go enough to not micromanage mm-hmm. what are some some tips or or guidance that you can give you know, obviously, the idea of letting go and not micromanaging at a high level makes sense, but how do they do it, right? For someone who says, well, wait a minute, this is my baby, like, and I'm afraid if I let go of this, even though I hired these people and I pay them every day because I think they're good, there's somewhere in me, there's a fear that they'll fail and because of that, I'll fail. How do we tackle that? <laughs> so this is going to sound harsh and non-business-like, but this, is where, <laughs> but this is where I roll. So, And I talk a lot about this in Remorseless because I do think that that, that overlap is huge. So the way that you, the whole time you're asking me this question, I'm thinking ego, ego, ego. So there, there's the harsh part, right? So absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if all of a sudden somebody at any organization, and again, it does not matter to me if it's for profit or, or not for profit, but if anybody in that role thinks that they are the end all be all, I would challenge them to say, what within me, what hole and gap within myself am I trying to fill by thinking that my job is my identity? It's not. It's not. And as much as we'd all like to think that we are the only person that can do whatever it is that we are doing on a daily basis, that's not true. It's not true. There are many, many more people. You know, I, I also, um, side note, I'm a marathoner. And so it's funny to me because I always want to win and I always know I'm not going to. 
the very first race I ran, my grandmother, who was like 83 at the time, she goes, honey, did you win? And I'm like, Graham, there were like 40,000 participants. No, I didn't win. I didn't even know the course because I didn't need to know. I just followed somebody. So the thing is, we can always raise our individual games. We can always be the best version of ourselves. But the best version of ourselves includes bringing up the next generation, includes mentoring. It includes uh, succession planning. And it, what it doesn't include is um, being so egotistical and narcissistic that we say, unless I do this, this whole place is going to fail. It's just, it's just not true. And it's bad leadership. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you for that. Let's uh, go in a little bit different direction here. Because really, when you talk about disrupting the status quo, in, at its core, you're talking about change management, right? And humans are creatures of habit. I led a significant change management initiative at my last company uh, that took multiple years. It was daunting. It you know sapped everyone's energy. And it was a huge learning experience for me. One of the things that I really had to wrestle with is how do you keep people motivated over the long term? You know, when, when you're not just changing one discrete piece of an organization or one discrete function, but really you're coming in and you're saying, we need to look at everything that we're doing and, and we might need whole scale change. That's a scary perspective for a lot of people. How do you bring teams along on that journey, but also make it so that I, I don't want to say comfortable because we really want discomfort in order to, to motivate change, but how do you make it less scary in the process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, um, breaking it down bit by bit. And so what I often tell my team, and they are repeating it to me now, so I know that it's sinking in. <laughs> I say, <laughs> I love it, right? And they say, Beth, you know how you always say, work smarter, not harder? And I say, yes, yeah. So part of you know the impetus behind that is to say, harder in that analogy seems like the whole thing, the whole change. That is very hard for people to take on. But to work smarter means what can I do within that giant looming task? What can I do now? How can I do the next right thing and trust the process such that it's cumulative? So that if I right now know that my job, as an example, we are doing a matching campaign, a 15-day matching campaign. If I know that I have that in front of me, but yet in the peripheral, I have all of these, you know, yearly goals and um, campaigns that we're doing and so much other work to be done around the mission, but how do I stay on task? Honestly, you just do it. And I know that sounds cliche, but what you do is say, this small chunk needs to get done, so I'm going to tackle it. And, And what happens is momentum. So I think what really is sort of the most daunting thing is for people to lose momentum. But the way to gain it is through action. So nobody's ever going to have momentum, you know, in a race by not taking the first step. So, so, you know, momentum is, is gained over time. Um, And so, you know, snowball rolling down a hill, whatever analogy or visual you can, you know, you can think of is really how you need to take that into the business world. So what I say to people is you guys just do it. Just let's do this one thing. And then I want to reconvene and I want you to tell me how you feel at the end of it. And people are praising one another People are like saying, wow, this is really great. I had one donor do this. And so again, that's momentum. You take it into the next call and the next call and the next call. And then when you have that, as an example, that calling plan done, you take that initiative into the next one and the next one and the next one. It is, it's cumulative. It's why I'm convinced. It's why people who have lots and lots of money, i.e. Hollywood at a very young age, get to our age, right? Midlife and go, well, now what? Because they've already done those things. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. uh, too, pre too prematurely. So there is something to be said for building blocks. And that's really, I think, what our team has been learning is if we do this one thing really well, we feel good at the end of it. We've got the momentum and, and that just carries them into the next one. And so fatigue sort of um, becomes a, an unnecessary byproduct. They don't get tired. They get excited. That's awesome. I love that. Okay. I have two more questions for you before I let you go today. So first is as you are approaching a change initiative like this, when you are not in a CEO chair, what have you found most effective in convincing a CEO uh, and maybe even a CFO that this kind of change and disruption actually will be valuable down the road? Like make that argument for somebody who's listening, who might say, I really believe in this, but I'm super scared to go tell my CEO we need to do this. Yeah. And, and again, this is um, nonprofit centric because the answer is ROI. <laughs> the answer at the end of the day is just to bring a little bit of emotion to that conversation, but more data, more data, more facts, more long-term why. So when I go in there and I say, these are things I want to do because I think everybody's going to feel really good if we do this. That's one conversation. But if I go in there and say, hey, people are going to feel good about this because these are the results, that's a better conversation. So I suspect that the answer is going to be very similar, but I want to expand a little bit to, and I don't know if you had to deal with this in El Trotter or not, but as you go through these initiatives, you know, sometimes boards are the most risk averse groups of people around the table in any nonprofit. Is it as simple as an ROI conversation with a board as well, or are there other things that you have to bring into the conversation there? So there are other things. It's very imperative as well. I can't not be spoken about, but it's also longer term mission centric. So what I would say is there are additional layers of conversation. So when you say these are the long term results, this is the ROI we're going to see, we can bring in more money. And then the additional layers need to be we're going to bring in more money because this is how our programming will be affected. These are the people that we will be able to help. This is the long term impact in our community. So it needs to be just an extension, a little more in depth, I would say. When you bring that ROI to the conversation with the board, you keep going and say, and then in five years, we can look like this. And these are the people. And so this is the change we will see. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a great conversation. I've learned a ton. I hope our listeners, I think they will. Tell us, uh, if somebody is interested in learning more, wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? On my website, it's bethfisher.com. Awesome. And then get your book there as well. Yes. Exactly. Even better. Thanks again for being with me today. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.